You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. I'm your host, Richard Franzi. This is podcast episode number 1201, and I believe we have a great show for you today. People naturally bond with those in their own groups and those with whom they have a common interest. But did you know this could bring unhealthy mindsets and negative relationships? I've invited author Howard Ross to join the show to address how cultural differences can be positive in his latest book, Our Search for Belonging, and why bias needs to be removed in our relationships. Howard, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. Thanks so much, Rick. It's great to be with you. So let's start very simply. What is the main idea contained in your latest book, sir? Well, you know, Rick, it was really it was really stimulated by what um, we, we've all been experiencing in our culture. You know, I began to notice it in a particularly dramatic way about three three years ago or so when the last election campaign started and the presidential election campaign started, and it just felt to me. Like, even in myself, I felt myself getting pulled into the us versus them more than ever before. And so I just became curious, what is it about us that feels like we need to form tribes? And when we started to do the research, along with um, my my good friend and uh, former mentee, John Robert Tartaglione, who helped me with a lot of the research, um, what we found was that this tendency to want to go along with the group is inherently human. Um, and that, in fact, our core need is to belong to the groups that we identify with. And that when... Um, when those groups are built against something, they can become quite toxic, and you can see the kind of tribalism and polarization we're seeing today. So, but it's basic human, it's a basic human need to belong, correct? Yes, it is, and, and it's also a basic human pattern to identify between us and them. So, I mean, you know, we've been studying bias for years, and at least 20 years, and, and one of the things that we found when we were doing research on bias, um, that was maybe the biggest breakthrough of all, which sounds kind of normal today, but when we first discovered it, it was like, wow, um, uh, is that bias is inherently who we are as human beings. It's not a bad trait that we have. It can either be bad or good, depending upon the circumstances used in. It can be bad when it's bias causes a police officer, for example, to shoot an innocent person just because they're African-American and therefore feel dangerous. Um, it could be good when we spot something that's dangerous far enough in advance so that it protects us. So it's not a good or a bad thing inherently, it's just simply a function of the mind. And similarly, when we started to do this research, Rick, what we found was the mind similarly automatically divides people between us and them. And it's probably something that comes from our evolutionary history. When we were living in caves and jungles thousands of years ago, we'd spot a group of people around the waterhole. We had to determine instantly whether it was us versus them in order to survive. And so we learned as a survival technique to be able to do that. And one of the things that comes along with that, of course, when we see people who are different from us, is that we tend to stereotype them more because we don't know them as well. So your second title, you know, our search for belonging is the main title, and then how the need for connection is tearing our culture apart. So kind of a couple different questions in this arena. One is, is your research and work specifically focused on the U.S., or did you look outside of our borders as well? Well, we did look. We did um, do some research around the world. We decided in writing the book that we would focus most of the work 
um, in terms of the, the current political environment on the U.S., mostly just because we, um, you know, we, we decided we had to go either deep or wide because of the particular length that we had to write. And we, we thought it would be more helpful to take a deeper look at one culture rather than look at what's going on in the world. But the human patterns that we're describing happen everywhere. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we have today, Rick, that we haven't had in the past is that we've mostly always lived in a bell curve society. I mean, if you think about it historically, you had most people who described themselves as moderates, either moderate liberals or moderate conservatives or independents. And then you had some people who are on the extremes. And occasionally we had an extreme that rose to the top. But for the most part, the way especially our political system worked was those people who were in that big mound in the middle tended to reach across the, the aisle and compromise. So Famously, for example, Teddy Kennedy, the most liberal member of the Senate, and Orrin Hatch, arguably the most conservative, collaborate on education reform. Or Joe Biden and John McCain collaborate on foreign policy issues. Or, or McCain and Feingold, you know, on uh, campaign finance. And this was sort of the way it was done. But now we've gone from that bell curve to a dumbbell curve where everything's on the ends and nothing's in the middle. And, and when that happens... Um, that tends to not only start with more extremity, but it also leads people to take more extreme positions. Because we know that if you take two groups of people um, who differ about something, put them in the same room and say, come up with a solution, they'll tend to move towards moderation. But if you take those same two groups and put them in two separate rooms, they'll move towards the extremes. And that's exactly what's happening today. So, so my sec- Thank you. So my second question or kind sure. of follow-up to that is, in your research, what impact is or was there from technology, specifically social media? Uh, it's huge impact. Um, I mean, media in general, the, the changes in media in general, social media is being part of it. I mean, if we think, first of all, looking to mainstream media, we used to look at three stations. We used to look at ABC, NBC, and CBS when I was growing up even. You know. Now, when you had three major stations, first of all, the major stations in those days didn't take points of view. It was considered to be unethical. If you remember... I don't know how old you are, Rick, but when Walter Cronkite came out against the Vietnam War, it was seismic. Uh, Linda Johnson said, well, we lost Walter Cronkite, we lost the country. The financial model also called for people not to take positions because you couldn't, you couldn't piss off half the marketplace you know, and, and, and be financially successful. But now when we have cable news and this bifurcated news, it's different because Fox or MSNBC or other stations don't need to get the whole station, the, the whole market, excuse me. They can only get a small portion, maybe 21%, in order to meet their financial needs. And how do you do that? You find your base, you throw your base red meat, and you keep them connected to you. And so what we find is that more and more news is punditry. Um, and, and not only that, but we're not even watching the news anymore. We're now watching people watching the news. You know, we turn on the news and we see panels of people to tell us how to interpret what's going on. Now then we move into social media, and what we have is groups of people who are in the extremes who used to be sort of isolated but now can connect with each other. So, for example, these white supremacist groups, which have gone from you know, groups that were largely 10 and 15 people now to groups of hundreds and thousands of people who are able to coordinate and organize, it and organize using, um, using media. And in addition to that, even those of us who are, quote, normal folk, what do we do? We tend to friend people or unfriend people based on whether they agree with us. Um, we block people on Twitter if they don't agree with us. And pretty soon, and then we read our news feeds from HuffPost on one side, Breitbart on the other, the Washington Post on one side, Wall Street Journal on the other. And pretty soon we're living in these propaganda um, containers of our own making so that everything we hear is echoed back to us. So, so we're talking with Howard Ross. We're talking about his latest book, Our Search for Belonging, How the Need for Connection is Tearing Our Culture Apart. So 
In your research, Howard, did you find countervailing forces for this? Is there or are there organizations who profit motives, social conscious, recognize that this is happening and are endeavoring to kind of swing the pendulum back in a different direction? Yeah, well, first of all, this is a real business issue because, you know, we all know that, that you know, along with your briefcase and your computer and your lunch, you also bring to work your values and the things that you're annoyed about and the thing you saw in the news on the way into the office. And so this is starting to show up in a lot of workforces. And so, interestingly enough, the workplace is becoming one of the places where some, you know, really forward-thinking companies are, are, in fact, doing something about this. And, in fact, maybe our last great hope, Rick, because the workplace is one of the few places anymore that you have to deal with people who are different from you. And so, for example, at Target Corporation, uh, Caroline Wonga, their chief diversity officer, um, is bringing groups of employees together to have courageous conversations about social issues when they emerge. And they're teaching them how to constructively talk about these things, how to agree without being disagreeable, how to disagree without being disagreeable. Um, at uh, General Mills, uh, James Momon, who's the leader there, um, is doing the same kinds of things. You know, I attended one program with them that I helped run where there were 600 people sitting at round tables with a whole group of trained facilitators who would help them learn to engage in conversations. Because what they're learning is, when people learn to engage in any kind of difficult conversation, it shows up in all of the difficult conversations they might engage in. So if you and I can talk, for example, about our different opinions about transgender bathrooms or the, the Muslim ban or something like this, and we can learn to talk about those while being civil with each other, then there's a good chance we can also talk about the differences we have in our marketing strategies or in the way we're dealing with customers differently. Um, and that's, in fact, what they're finding. Are you saying, then, that uh, in some of the of these firms, they're the crucible for the change that we need that, we're, that, that will counterbalance what seems to be an ever-increasing phenomenon, which is polarization of the nation? Absolutely. I think that they can provide, I think that the workplace provides an enormous opportunity um, because of what I said before, because if if you and I are sitting next to each other in cubicles in the marketing department and our marketing head comes up to and says, I need the two of you to do such and such for me by next Friday. The fact that you voted for Trump and I voted for Clinton or vice versa doesn't make a damn bit of difference. If we're going to do our job well, we need to put that aside and work together. And there are very few places in life these days where that's happening. I mean, remember, I mean, I'm sure you've read this. Thousands of families have canceled Thanksgiving dinner in the last couple of years rather than be at the same table with old Uncle Ernie who voted different than they did in the election. And think how sad that is. And we're even canceling things like Thanksgiving because we don't know how to talk to each other. Your previous book was on bias, and I was wondering if that doesn't build on the research that you've done here in your book, Our Search for Belonging, because I'm wondering, um, are we seeing that companies who maybe don't who aren't as forward-thinking are introducing more bias into their hiring process, thereby eliminating diversity from even getting inside their company. I mean, are we seeing any signs of of companies having to be even more thoughtful about their hiring process, uh, trying to make sure that the decision-makers aren't swayed by non-business issues and kind of beliefs? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we found in doing the work on bias, and you're having not only in writing the book, but also working with now really, really hundreds of thousands of people over the last 20 years, is that, um, you know, we tend to look at bias from a social justice standpoint, of course, and there is a social justice framework for it. There's no question about that. But from a business standpoint, if I've got two people who are interviewing for a job, let's say one's a woman and one's a man, and I hire the man simply because I feel more comfortable with him, or for some reason, like political views, which are extraneous to the job that he's doing. 
I may as well be rolling the dice to see if I get the best person. And that's what the, the, the reason that I think so many companies now are doing work on bias and trying to be more uh, conscious about the way they make decisions, not just because they want to be fair, not just because they think it's a social justice issue, but because you make better business decisions when you're aware of your biases. Um, if I don't hire somebody just because my first impression um, of them, unbeknownst to me, is that they remind me of a bully who beat me up in sixth grade. And so they sort of turn me off when I first meet them. And I don't even know why that is. Um, I may have lost the best, the brightest bulb in the box simply because they're physically you know, reminiscent of somebody from my past who I didn't like. It doesn't make a lot of rational sense in terms of running your business. A previous book that you've written is Reinventing uh, Diversity as well. And, and in that, you're talking about transforming organizational community, uh, you know, to strengthen the people. And, and so in your work, these are all interrelated subject matters. I can see how the arc of your research yep. and career, it kind of all kind of comes together with your latest book. But I'm just wondering, big idea, what did you, what would what would a reader find if they invested the time to write, to read Reinventing Diversity as well? Um, I think the, the main theme of reinventing diversity, which which was my first book, came out in 2011, was that the 21st century is a different time, a different place, and we have to look at how we handle these issues differently. But the first 30 years of, of um, doing diversity work, especially in businesses, and, and, and reinventing diversity is mostly focused on business, although not completely. We, we basically approached it as if there were people out there who needed to be fixed. You know, find them and fix them. Find the races, find the sexes and the like. Um, we saw this as, for the most part, just an American issue. And, and we also tended to see it as something that we would just throw events at. So we would do a, a diversity training, Black History Month, an International Food Day in a cafeteria, and we would check off diversity as part of our schedule. <laughs> and, and that's the way a lot of organizations have, and sometimes, sadly, still do it. And, and what the point of reinventing diversity is to say this is, first, first of all, a global issue, that we're living in a global world, whether we like it or not, We've got the global influence of companies that have to deal with people outside of the United States who might be their customers or some of their employees. We've got globalism coming into the United States when we have the massive amounts of people who came from other countries and other cultures, not just around race, but around culture as well. And that we have to become more culturally fluent to operate and be successful in that world. And then secondly, most people who make choices that are differential, that impact one group differently than another, we find in the research, don't do it on purpose. They do it unconsciously. And so the more we blame and shame people, the more actually they get defensive. The more we can help people understand the way they think and the way they make decisions, they will tend to get to their best decision-making. Now, I'm not suggesting that I think that you can reach somebody like that, Richard Spencer or David Duke that way. There's certain people who are so hateful and so hurtful that you just have to find a way to contain them. But I'm talking about the average everyday person who comes to work and just wants to do the right thing. And then the third thing was um, about the third theme of reinventing diversity was that we have to think systemically about how we do this. We can't just see this as something to throw events at, but we want to take it seriously like we do any other business issue and do it in a way by looking at our entire system and seeing how can we make slight improvements here or there that can help us get the best people and keep them. We're talking with Howard Ross. He's the author of three books. We've kind of touched on the latest book, Our Search for Belonging, touched very quickly on Everyday Bias, his second book, and then we went back all the way to his original book, uh, Reinventing <laughs> Diversity. So, Howard, is there a fourth book that you're considering, or wh what's next for you, sir? Actually, yeah, actually there is. Um, and um, I'm talking um, with my son, um, Jacob, about doing a book um, that, that picks up where um, – where I search for belonging uh, left off, and really talks about how do we create um, how do we create organizations that 
um, are joyful and in which people really do feel a sense of belonging, which employees feel really connected and committed to what they're doing. And I mean organizations of all kinds, not just businesses, but also not-for-profits and community-based organizations as well. Uh, my son is studying positive psychology at Berkeley, and he's doing his thesis on uh, joy and organization. So it's kind of a perfect marrying of our um, different interests. And what a great opportunity to collaborate with your son. Really? Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, I, I can't yeah. wait to see that book come out. So um, <laughs> do you have any other, I know you mentioned a little bit about how you work with so many people on diversity, et cetera, sure. but do you have other resources available that support your books or the or the work that you're doing on these subjects that you'd like to share with my audience? Sure. Thanks. Yeah, people can just, people can reach me at www.howardjross.com. And um, all our contact information is there. Um, and uh, we can tell you we're, we're starting to work in organizations to develop work um, to support people in developing the sense of belonging in organizations, to conduct courageous conversations, um, to find ways to build stronger culture. Um, and glad to talk with people and also send them, you know, give them connections to uh, thought papers and the like on the same subjects. And final question, I sort of put this up, should have put this up before that, but I'm wondering, in your research, do you find any differences that are dramatic and sort of indicative based on age cohort on the work and research that you've done, or is there no difference based on age cohorts? Um, there's definitely difference, and um, it's interesting that the differences are not, they're distinct, um, but not different in the sense that for example, uh, millennials or what they're now calling Generation Zs or, or the newer employees are much more savvy on social media. Um, they have, um, they tend to have deeper relationships um, with people on social media because they don't see it as an alternative to personal relationship. Um, those people in in older generations tend still tend to have more distinction between those kinds of relationships. But ultimately, we're all looking for the same thing. We're all looking for that group that we can bond with, that group that we can feel like we belong to, where we feel like we can really be ourselves and demonstrate our best selves. Well, Howard Ross, I really want to appreciate and let you know how much I appreciated the time that you spent with my audience today. I want to thank you for being a friend of the Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. Uh, I've enjoyed just briefly kind of skipping across your three books and having you share a little bit of what you know and invite you to come back on anytime, sir. And certainly when your fourth book drops with your son, would love to have you back on the radio show to talk about that content. Thanks so much, Rick. I really appreciate it and keep up your good work. Thank you, sir. I'd like to thank our engineer for today's show, Paul Roberts, our producers without whom I could not do this show, Joan Park, Crystal Nunley, and Haley Stern. If you'd like to connect with me, I'd say let's start on LinkedIn. I am Richard Franzi, spelled F-R-A-N-Z-I. Until our next show, I hope all of your decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi.